The sermon text today is Genesis 30, verse 25, all the way through to chapter 32, verse 2. Genesis 30, verse 25 to 32, 2. By the way, the chapter and verse divisions that we have in our Bibles are not original to the text. I hope you know that. Uh, they are not, therefore, inspired. Um, neither are the pericope headings above uh, you know, the different sections in the Bible. Those were added later. They are commentary, really. So, I hope you're not frustrated with me that I have uh, divided this text up a little bit differently, going all the way to verse 2 of chapter 32. I think that's really the section that is meant to be considered together. It's a very long passage today. There will not be a New Testament reading. Genesis 30, starting in verse 25. Hear now the word of the Lord. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You yourselves know, you yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock have fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, What shall I give you? Jacob said, You shall not give me anything if you will do this for me. I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb, and the spotted and speckled amongst the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted amongst the goats and black amongst the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, Good, let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in charge of his sons. He set a great distance of, of three days journey between himself and Jacob and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and he peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks he set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places, where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth stripes speckled and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock, that they might breed amongst the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was, and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. 
You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, The spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, The striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock I lifted up my eyes and I saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, Here I am. And he said, Lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen that all, all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So Jacob arose and set his sons and wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had, and arose and crossed the Euphrates, and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days, and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me? And did not tell me, so that I might have sent you away with myrrh and songs, with tambourine and lyre. And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away, because you long greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, for I thought you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live in the presence of our kinsmen. Point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched out, but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These twenty years 
I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flock. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was, day and night. Heat consumed me, and the cold of night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have cheated and you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to the kinsmen, Gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar Shahaduath. I don't know if that's right. Shahadutha, we'll leave it at that. But Jacob called it Gilead. Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Gilead and Mizpah. For he said, The Lord watched between you and me when we were out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. And Laban departed and returned home. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahaneum. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May the Lord help us now uh, through the preaching of the word to apply it to our lives today. I'm sure you're thinking to yourself, this is a very large portion of Scripture to handle in just uh, one sermon. Um, You might also be thinking and wondering, are we going to be here all day, uh, given the length of this text? And the answer is no, the sermon is going to be about as long as it usually is. Uh, To help us digest this large text of Scripture, I'm going to divide it into six parts. One, The negotiations between Jacob and Laban is found in verses 25 through 36 of chapter 30. Two, the account of Jacob breeding his own flock in 30, 37 through 31. One, three, Jacob's preparations to return home in 31, 2 through 16. Four, Jacob's departure and Laban's pursuit of him in 31, 17 through 24. 5. The confrontation between Laban and Jacob in 31.25-54. through 54. And then 6. The conclusion of the matter. When Laban returns home, but Jacob continues on, and he sees the Lord. 31.55-32.2. Obviously, I'm not going to be able to spend a great deal of time in each of these parts, but we will know their meaning and draw application from each. And not only is it helpful to divide this narrative into its distinct parts... 
I think it is also important to recognize its focus. What is its focus? What is the point that is being made in this long narrative about the relationship between Jacob and Laban and Jacob's fleeing to go back home? And the answer is, once again, that God was faithful to fulfill the promises that He made to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. In all of this narrative, that is the point. We see God's faithfulness here to fulfill the promises that He made to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. Remember that God promised that these people would be blessed and that they would be a blessing. He promised that they would have many offspring and that they would become a nation and that they would have the land of Canaan as their possession. And in this narrative, we see that Jacob was blessed and that Laban for a time was also blessed through his relationship to Jacob. We see that Jacob was given offspring, many offspring. But notice that at the beginning of this passage, Jacob was still living like a slave in a foreign land. That is the situation. Was Jacob blessed of the Lord? Yes, he was. In fact, Jacob even blessed Laban by being in his presence. Laban's wealth increased greatly. Did did Jacob have many offspring? Yes, uh, many sons. Uh, We see, in fact, the first outlines of the nation of Israel. They have now emerged from Jacob while he was there living under Laban's uh, mastership. But there is a problem. Jacob is still in a foreign land. He is living there like a slave. He has nothing that really belongs to himself. He is not in the land of promise. For 14 years he had served his uncle Laban, who proved to be a cruel, cunning, and covetous taskmaster. That was even the opinion that his own daughters had of him. Did you note that? When Jacob begins to talk to Leah and Rachel, they say, listen, we have nothing. Our father even sold us away to you as to be your, to be your wives. He, he's devoured everything. We have nothing left here. Jacob served him to have his daughter's hand in marriage. But we are to remember, remember the promise that the Lord made to Jacob concerning the land. Jacob, he certainly remembered it. Many years prior to this episode here, Jacob had dreamed a dream and saw a ladder to heaven with angels of God ascending and descending upon it. The heavens opened and the Lord standing above it. And what did the Lord say to Jacob in Genesis 28:13? The Lord said this, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, this is while he was still in Canaan, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That was the promise given to Jacob before he left the promised land to to dwell with Laban. For 14 years Jacob lived, therefore, in exile. He was like a slave to Laban. But the Lord would keep His promise. In fact, not only was He there for 14 years, but for even more time than that after He had served for Laban's two daughters. The Lord would be faithful to rescue Jacob from the bondage and to bring him back into the land of promise. And I am saying to you that this is the focus of the narrative. This is the main point. It is again a testimony to the faithfulness of God to keep the promises that He made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He would bless them, He would give them many offspring, and the land of Canaan would belong to them. This is important for you to know. But also put yourself in the position of the original audience when Moses wrote this and gave this book to Israel. Think of their circumstance. 
They had just been redeemed from Egypt. They were wandering in the wilderness. They needed to be reminded that God would be faithful to keep His promises. God was faithful to Abraham. He was faithful to Isaac. He was faithful to Jacob. Therefore, children of Israel, you must expect the same, that God will be faithful to you to bring you safely into the promised land. I do wonder, though, if you are growing tired of hearing about the promises of God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Are you growing tired of hearing? But don't answer that question. I, I hope the answer is no, but I know it is a possibility. For we've been in Genesis for some time now, and from Genesis 12, 1, all the way to this point and even beyond, that is the central theme. Those promises made to Abraham were passed along to Isaac, and the promises given to Isaac were passed along to Jacob. And those promises are the glue that hold the individual stories of the book of Genesis together. Some of the stories that we find here in Genesis are, are fascinating. There is diversity here in this book. But those promises are always there in the background. In other words, each individual story that we have considered, though many observations and applications can be made about them, is really about the fulfillment of these promises. I suppose that it is possible for one to grow weary of hearing about these promises, Lord's Day after Lord's Day. But I would urge you not to grow weary. Instead, I am urging you to understand that these promises are so important that the book of Genesis, and indeed the entire Pentateuch, is about the initial fulfillment of them. And more than that, we are to understand that the New Testament Scriptures are very much focused upon them, for the New Testament is concerned to demonstrate that these promises find their ultimate fulfillment in the person and finished work of Jesus the Christ. Put another way and put more bluntly, you cannot understand your Christian faith at all without understanding what the narrative of Genesis is trying to show you. That God promised to provide a Redeemer through His chosen people, Christ Jesus our Lord. So then, uh, this long passage that we are considering today may be divided into six parts, but its focus again is to once again tell us the story of God's faithfulness to keep His promises made to our spiritual forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Our story begins with these words, As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. And with these words, uh, Jacob's negotiations with Laban begin. Fourteen years had passed since Jacob began to serve Laban for his two daughters. At first, he served Laban for seven years. He thought he would be given his beloved Rachel uh, as wife at the end of those seven years. But Laban acted deceptively and gave him Leah instead. A week later, Jacob was given Rachel also, but the agreement was that he would serve Laban for another seven years. Jacob was faithful to his word. I think that needs to be noted, by the way. We live in a culture where people do not keep their word, but Jacob kept his word. He served that seven years, received one daughter, received another daughter a week later, and was faithful to serve another seven years. He completed his years of service, and having remembered the promise of God concerning the eventual return to the land of Canaan, he went to Laban to ask permission to leave, saying, Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. But we must remember that Laban was a shrewd man. Remember how many years before he tried to keep Abraham's servant from leaving with his sister Rebekah as a wife for Isaac. That's a long time ago in Genesis. It was many years before this episode. 
We presumed then that he wished to delay the servant so that he might ex extract more of Abraham's wealth from that servant. Laban was shrewd with Jacob when he first met him. He capitalized upon Jacob's love for his daughter and his, naive, uh, his naivete, um, and he in essentially enslaved Jacob for 14 years. So here comes Jacob walking into town. He must have assumed this man will be kind to me. After all, he's my relative. <laughs> he will be kind to me. But he was naive. He was enslaved for 14 years. And here we see that his character has not changed at all. He is still hesitant to let Jacob go. And, and why was he hesitant to let him go? Not out of love for Jacob, nor out of love for his daughters and his grandchildren. He talks that way later, but it's not true. He did not want to let Jacob go because he knew that he was being blessed on account of Jacob's presence. Verse 27, Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages, and I will give it. Not only was Laban a greedy man in love with the things of this world, here we see clearly that he was also a pagan man, one who worshipped and consulted false gods. Laban claimed to learn by divination that the Lord had blessed Jacob because of him. Uh, in reality, he probably didn't need divination to see that. It was obvious. Anyone with eyes could see and understand that Laban's wealth increased greatly while Jacob was with him. Jacob was blessed of the Lord, and he was also a blessing to those with whom he was allied. This was in fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Laban's words here, Name your wages and I will give it. Don't they seem generous at first? They do. They seem generous on the surface. Name your wages and I will give it. But Jacob knew that they were empty words. He knew that Laban was only beginning the process of a vigorous and probably oppressive and controlling negotiation. And here Jacob shows that he was wise. He knew full well how greedy and stingy his uncle was. And so Jacob did not ask for a wage. Instead, he made an offer to Laban uh, that he could not refuse. It was also a plan that required Jacob to trust in the Lord's provision. If the plan was going to prosper him, in other words, it would require that the Lord intervene to bless him. And essentially, the offer was this. Jacob would continue to serve as the shepherd of Laban's flocks, and his payment would be the rare and oddly colored sheep and goats, these these off-colored sheep and goats would be Jacob's to keep. So he was not given a wage, but instead he proposed this, of all the flocks and all they bear forth, I will take the oddly colored ones. The black sheep and the striped and spotted and mottled goats will be mine. Uh, most of Laban's sheep were white, few were black. The black ones would belong to Jacob, but Laban was to take those black sheep away from the flocks, thus greatly minimizing the possibility of more black sheep being born within the herd. And similarly, most of Laban's goats were black. A few were spotted, striped, and mottled. Again, the oddly colored goats would belong to Jacob, but Laban would remove them from the flock and take care of them, thus minimizing the possibility of more spotted, striped, and mottled sheep being born into the herd. In other words... Um, we are not shepherds, and so maybe we don't realize this. It's not plain to us. But this was a sweet deal for Laban. He thought to himself, this is an offer I can't refuse. In fact, Jacob, you're kind of crazy for suggesting it. You're going to work hard for many, many more years. 
You're going to tend my flocks. My wealth is going to increase. Your wealth will probably even uh, decrease more, and you will continue on as my slave forever and ever. You'll never have enough of your own to leave. But notice the shrewdness and the distrust in the heart of Laban. He doesn't even trust Jacob enough to allow Jacob to remove the black sheep and the oddly colored goats from the flock. He does it himself. In verse 35 we read, But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted, and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted. Every one of them had white on it, and every lamb that was black, and put them in charge of his sons. Uh, Notice the distrust here even furthermore. He set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Laban, and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. So he himself removed them so that Jacob could not trick him in any way. And then he put a three days' journey between these flocks. Laban held on to the black sheep and the oddly colored goats, Uh, He kept them for Jacob. They were his, but he kept them. And now Jacob was left there with pure white sheep and pure black goats. Good luck, Jacob, I think is what Laban thought. What drove Jacob to make this arrangement, do you think? One, he knew that he could not escape Laban's grasp on that day, for he was too poor. He had basically served as a slave to Laban for 14 years and for no profit to himself. Really, he had no power in the negotiation at all. If he were to flee, where would he go? How would he survive the journey? And so we see that Jacob was in a very bad spot. He was under Laban's thumb. He was like a captive. Two, Jacob knew that the time had come for him to provide for his own family. Jacob said to Laban, you yourself know how I have served you. And how your livestock has fared with me, for you have had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now when shall I provide for my own household also? All of my labor has been for your benefit, Laban. But what about my household? When, I'm, when am I going to build my own wealth and take care of my wives and my children? And three, Jacob did remember the promise of the Lord that he would one day return to Canaan. He must have held on to that. I'm sure he was tired of working for Laban. He learned his lesson many years ago, probably. And he longed to return to that land that was promised to him and to his descendants after him. I believe that Jacob is to be commended here. He is to be commended for his wisdom and his faith. Jacob was wise. He knew that he needed to provide for his family and he understood the character of the man that he was dealing with. He had to find a way to procure wealth so that he might return home. But he understood that Laban would do everything in his power to control him and to keep him in bondage. He saw clearly what Laban was. He was a cruel and wicked taskmaster. The proposal that he made to Laban would require that the Lord bless him, but it would also free him from Laban's grasp should the Lord choose to do so required great faith. And brothers and sisters, I think we can learn something from Jacob here. We learn that we are to be wise in the world and not naive as Christians. I think that is a point of application that we can make. We must be wise in this world and not naive. The Christian should know that the world is filled with people like Laban who, if given the opportunity, would happily take advantage of them. Now, not everyone is like this. I think we should guard against being 
overly pessimistic on this point. And indeed, God's common grace is wonderful as He restrains evil within the world. But there are, in fact, many Labans in the world. There are many who prey upon orphans and widows. They are ready and willing to take advantage of the vulnerable and the needy. And I am concerned for you, Christian, that as you labor to love even your enemies according to the command of Christ, that you bring along with you discernment too. We are to love our enemies. We're to love those who are worldly even. We're to do good to them. But there is a danger if we do not bring discernment along with us. It's possible for us to get taken advantage of. I think Jacob was naive at first. This is my uncle. Certainly he's going to care for me. Certainly he wants for me to have his daughter's hand in marriage. He wants me to prosper so that they might prosper. And his, his grandchildren and great-grandchildren, so they might prosper. Surely that's how Laban is thinking. But he was a wicked man. He was even willing to take advantage of his own daughters and to consume their inheritance. Uh, we must have discernment as Christians as we live in this world. We must love our neighbor as ourselves. We must love even our enemies, but we are to do so with wisdom and discernment, knowing that the human heart is exceedingly corrupt. There are very wicked people in this world who will devour you during the day, and they'll sleep very well at night. They won't think twice about it. And again, Jacob learned this the hard way. He was naive at first. He learned this the hard way. But after 14 years, Jacob saw this clearly, and so he acted according to wisdom. He was not naive here. But he put forth a plan that required faith in God, and that would, in fact, if God chose to bless him, bring about his deliverance. Not only should the Christian know that the world is filled with people like Laban, we should also remember that our spiritual adversary is this way too. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He's not nice. He's not concerned to see you prosper. In fact, he wants to devour you. This is why we must be sober-minded and watchful. 1 Peter 5, 8 tells us about this. We must stay alert, for the evil one is crafty and cunning. He would love to have you in his snare. And it's for this reason that the Christian must cultivate spiritual discernment. We must take care to obey God's word always. We must partake regularly of the ordinary means of grace and rely upon one another in Christian fellowship, lest when we think we stand, we actually fall. Our spiritual adversary is very cunning. He's kind of like Laban, uh, but much better at it even than Laban was. And I do have concern for the church of God. I do see how the enemy draws the people of God away, lulls them into a state of sleepy complacency. And then, at the opportune time, he pounces. He pounces and kills whatever faith is remaining in that one. Brothers and sisters, let us not be naive concerning those who live in the world. Let us also not be naive concerning uh, how ferocious our spiritual adversary is. I have said that Jacob is to be commended for his wisdom and also his faith. I say that he is to be commended for his faith because his proposal to Laban would only profit him should the Lord choose to bless him. And so Jacob believed that the Lord would, and this was based upon the promise of God, who years earlier had said to him, Behold, I am with you, 
and will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So here Jacob is found walking by faith and not by sight. Secondly, it is in Genesis 30, 37 through 31, 1 that we find the account of Jacob breeding his own flocks. This is a strange little section in Scripture, I will admit it. And it's hard to know what exactly to make of it. As Jacob shepherded Laban's flock, a flock that was at first made up of all white sheep and all black goats, here is what he would do. He would take poplar and almond sticks and he'd peel the strips of bark off so that they were striped sticks. When the sheep and goats would come to drink water, they would also mate. And so Jacob would at that time place the striped sticks in the water, but only in front of the strong sheep and goats. So the end result was the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. In those days... Shepherds did believe that what their sheep and goats looked at while they mated would have an effect upon the appearance of their offspring. That was a commonly held notion. For example, if the goats looked at something striped while mating, they were more likely to bear young that were striped. And it's kind of understandable to to think that ancient people would, would think in this way. In fact, if a black goat looked upon a striped goat while mating... It was likely that a striped goat would be born. You following with me here? So from the appearance of things, it seemed that this is how things worked. If a black goat looked upon a striped goat while mating, it was likely a striped goat would be born. And they knew this from observation. Now, modern genetics explains why this is. But the ancients based their theory off of what they saw happening in their flocks, all white as white sheep looked upon black sheep while mating. They observed that something other than a white sheep was was born. And so Jacob knew this. But the question was, how would he come to have oddly colored sheep when the flocks consisted only of white sheep and black goats? How would he come to, to have this? Jacob's solution was to put something striped in front of their eyes when they mated. But he would do this only with the strong ones, so that the oddly colored flock would be large and strong, and Laban's would be small and weak. And it worked. It worked to the extent that Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob had taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has gained all his wealth. Modern science tells us that it's genetics that makes the difference here, and not what sheep and goats look at when mating that determines the color of the offspring. How then are we to interpret this story about what Jacob did to get his multicolored flocks? I think two things should be observed. One, Jacob did what he thought needed to be done to produce the oddly colored sheep and goats, which would be his according to the agreement. In other words, he acted, didn't he? He trusted the Lord, but he acted. He had all white sheep and all black goats. What is he to do? He did what he thought he could do. He made something striped, sticks, and he put them in the water troughs. And as they made it, they looked upon them and he did his best. He did everything in his power and acted according to his understanding of things. And I think considered from this vantage point, Jacob should be commended for his creativity and his work ethic. That's my take on it. Others might look upon it and say, here's Jacob being shrewd again. I I don't know. He's working hard. He's doing his best with what he has. And I think there is a point of application for us to make here. 
that trusting in the Lord and in His promises does not mean that we sit idly by waiting for God to accomplish His purpose. Uh, accomplish His purposes. For, for God accomplishes His purposes through means. Right. We are to be active, therefore, as we walk by faith. As parents, we should pray for the salvation of our children. We should trust the Lord to call them to Himself graciously. But we should also act. I hope you agree with that. We do not sit idly by, only praying. We pray and then we rise up and we we do things. We must discipline our children. We must teach them the Word of God and communicate the Gospel to them. They must also live according to the Scriptures and put the love and grace of God on display to them. That is how parents are to live. And So trusting in God does not mean that we are to sit idly by. We might look with suspicion upon Jacob's methods. But one thing is sure, he did work. And so I do ask you that question, where might the Lord be calling you to work? That is just to, to say, to take responsibility and to act. Uh, pray, yes, that the Lord would intervene, trust in His promises, but get busy also. I think this is what Jacob was doing. Two, though Jacob acted in this way, he ultimately trusted in the Lord to bring forth the oddly colored sheep and goats that were to be his. And this becomes clear in the next and third section where we see Jacob preparing to return home. There's two things uh, that Jacob, uh, there's two reasons why Jacob knew that it was time for him to leave as we transition to this next section in 31.2 through 16. In verse 2 we read that Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Uh, So Laban enjoyed having Jacob around, provided a wealth for him, and Jacob remained poor Now that Jacob's wealth was increasing and his decreasing, the relationship grew strained and Jacob knew it was time to leave. Laban didn't have to say anything to him. He could just tell. Uh, This inclination was confirmed by the word of the Lord in verse 3 where we read, Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and your kindred and I will be with you. So there the matter is settled. He could tell Laban was Laban was having disagreements with Jacob now. He knew it was time to leave, but here the word of the Lord comes to him clearly. Jacob then called his wives, Rachel and Leah, to himself, and he spoke with them in the open field to be sure that no one overheard them. And pay careful attention to what he said in verse 5. I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. Hear the faith of of Jacob coming forth. I know that, that the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. Jacob knows that his prosperity came from what? From the Lord, the Lord looking after him. If he said, The spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. If he said, The stripe shall be your wages, then all the flock bore stripe. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and I saw this dream, that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, Here am I. And he said, Lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flocks are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. The thing that I wanted you to notice there in that that section is that though Jacob was active in putting these striped sticks before the sheep as they drank and as they mated, 
he knew that it was ultimately the Lord who gave him the increase. He was aware of that. That it was the Lord fulfilling His promises to him. That he, The Lord said to him, I'm going to look out for you. I'll be with you always until I fulfill all of these promises. And Jacob here is acting by faith ultimately. Knowing that it was the Lord, the God of Bethel, who was with him and who was prospering him. Fourthly, in verses 17 through 24, we learn of Jacob's departure and Laban's pursuit. I'm not going to read this section again for the sake of time, but I do want to make one observation. It is hard to miss the parallels between this story of Jacob's departure and Laban's pursuit and the story of the exodus of Israel from Egypt. I want you to make this connection, for I I do think that uh, this is where uh, we begin to understand the meaning of this text and the purpose of it. Uh, Think of this story that we have just considered, Jacob's departure and Laban's pursuit, and the story of the exodus of Israel from Egypt that we will come to later in the Pentateuch. God preserved Jacob while in captivity under Laban. He sent him out after he had plundered Laban. And Laban pursued him. Years later, the descendants of Jacob would find themselves in captivity to Pharaoh in Egypt. The Lord would preserve them there in that place. He would send them out from Egypt, and they would leave Egypt not empty-handed, but they would leave that place with great plunder, with great wealth. Pharaoh agreed to let them go, but shortly thereafter he changed his mind and he pursued them into the wilderness to overtake them and to do them harm, but God would preserve them. And so these two stories, the story of Jacob plundering Laban, fleeing from him and being pursued by him, and God preserving him throughout, mirrors the story of Israel's experience, who descended from Jacob many years later. It is important to recognize these parallels for these historical events, Jacob's deliverance from Laban and Israel's deliverance from Egypt. They revealed truth. More than random and ordinary historical events, these historical events revealed something. And what did they reveal? They revealed that God is faithful to preserve His people that He will bless them, and He will provide redemption for them. He would free them from the tyranny of the evil one. Jacob's deliverance from Laban and Israel's deliverance from Egypt were physical in nature. These things really happened. These people really got up and they walked, you see, and others pursued. It was a physical deliverance. It was physical provision. It was physical in nature. But these physical events, these earthly events, symbolized and prefigured our spiritual deliverance in Christ. That is why I am saying to you that these historical events revealed something. They were real events, but but they were prophetic in nature. They were revelatory in nature. The revealing truth that, that our God is a faithful God who will preserve His people. He will protect them. He will preserve them, even as they are pursued, He will provide deliverance for them. This is what Paul says in Colossians 1.13, that God has delivered us 
from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jacob was in bondage to Laban and Israel to Pharaoh, but you, if you have not been set free by Christ, are in bondage to a worse master. You are in bondage to Satan, to sin, to death. You are held captive by the evil one and are oppressed subjects of his kingdom. And you must be set free in Christ, whom God has sent. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, Paul says. And so I must ask this question, are you in Christ? Have you been set free by Him through faith in Him? And if not, you are to repent and believe upon the Lord for the forgiveness of sins, the Scriptures say. Fifthly, in verses 25 through 54, we learn that Laban finally caught up with Jacob and confronted him for leaving secretly with his daughters and grandchildren. And again, I'm going to leave it to you to consider the details of this conversation because I just want to make one observation. Excuse me. Laban confronted Jacob in much the same way that the evil one confronts those who have escaped his oppressive reign and who are journeying journeying on toward the land of promise, that is to say, the new heavens and the new earth. There is a correlation here that we must recognize. When Laban caught up with Jacob, what did he do? He rebuked him so as to shame him. He claimed that Jacob had tricked him. He had led his daughters away like captives and not given him the opportunity to say goodbye. We know that Jacob had good reason to sneak away. He knew well Laban's character. But Laban sought to make Jacob feel ashamed that he had broken away from him in this manner. And I want you to recognize, brothers and sisters, that the evil one will do this to those who have broken with his kingdom to walk with God in his He will do the same thing. He will pursue the Christ follower to say things like this. How could you leave your old friends and allegiances behind? How could you do it? They were so good to you. They loved you so much, he will say. He will seek to convince the new Christian that breaking away from his kingdom was far too abrupt and extreme. What is it that you are doing? Walking with Christ in this world, pursuing holiness, living for His kingdom, which you cannot see. Isn't that kind of radical? Couldn't we have negotiated a little bit more and entered into an agreement so that you remained with me? Do you see the tactic of the evil one put on display here through Laban? He pursued Jacob, caught up with him, and began to rebuke him so as to shame him. When Laban overtook Jacob, he also accused him. Someone has stole his household idols. And so he spoke to Jacob, saying, But why did you steal my gods? Now, it was true that someone did steal his gods. It was Rebekah. Why she did this, uh, we do not know. But she hid them from Laban. And I want you to notice that the evil one also pursues those who leave him to sojourn with Christ, and he accuses them when he catches up with them. What does he do to the Christian? But he begins to remind them of their sin. He reminds them of former sins and present sins to urge them to turn back. He begins to say to them, you are not worthy. That is his central message. And truth be told, he is right. Was Laban right that someone stole his gods? In fact, he was. 
And when the evil one says to us, you are not worthy, our reply to him should be, you are right. I am not worthy. In fact, I'm a guilty sinner. I'm reminded of that passage in the Pilgrim's Progress where Christian is being accused by Apollyon, I think. And you're not worthy. You've already, you've already messed things up and sinned against your new master. And I forget what exactly Christian's response is, but basically it is this. You don't even know the half of it. I've done worse things even than what you're mentioning right now. And nevertheless, to paraphrase, I'm moving on because I'm being covered by the, by the blood of Christ. This is what the evil one does. He is the accuser who accuses the brethren. But when the accuser accuses the believer, the believer must learn to appeal to Christ to the forgiveness of sins through His shed blood and the imputation of His righteousness to them received by faith. Yeah, you're right about the sins that I've committed in the past and even those that I'm struggling with now. But I've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. His righteousness has been given to me. I've received it by faith. When Laban spoke with Jacob, he sought to persuade him to return, notice. He sought to convince Jacob that really he was a good master and a loving father. Jacob knew that these were just words. Laban was a cruel and exacting master. He was an unloving father. But the evil one will pursue those who have been freed from his grasp to follow after Christ, and he will try to convince them of the same. He will say to them, I wasn't such a bad master, was I? I was actually good to you and wanted what is best for you. You enjoyed more pleasure then than you are enjoying now, perhaps. But notice that Jacob would have none of it. He knew that it was empty and deceptive talk, and so it should be for the Christian. We should have none of that empty and deceptive talk. I want you to take special notice of the covenant that Jacob and Laban one another in verses 44 through 53. Jacob set up a stone, and they together heaped up stones. In other words, Jacob and Laban, they built a monument in that place. And this monument functioned as a border between them and as a reminder of their vow to do each other no harm. Look at verse 52. This heap is a witness and a pillar. It's a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. What a sad ending to the story of Jacob and Laban. Though kinsmen according to the flesh, they could not dwell together and they so distrusted one another that a covenant had to be made between them and this monument erected saying, we're not going to pass this boundary. And when we come this way and we see it, we'll be reminded of this covenant to not do harm to one another. But I think it should be this way also in regard to the believer's relationship to the evil one and his kingdom. There can be no peace between the two. There should only be distrust there should be a commitment on behalf of the believer to never return. James 4.4 4 says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There can be no agreement. There can be no treaty. There can be no peace between these two kingdoms. But we must erect that spiritual uh, memorial, as it were, to remind us that we can never return back to that place, but we must remain in God's kingdom and allied with Him. Sixthly and lastly, 
in verses 30, 55, uh, 31, 55 through 32, 2. This story is brought to a conclusion as Laban and Jacob go their separate ways. Notice this. Laban simply returns home to his land and presumably back to his old way of life. Do you see it there? He just returns home. But notice what is said about Jacob. Verse 1 of chapter 32. Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. What a beautiful picture here. Things have come full circle. Jacob saw that ladder with angels ascending and descending upon him as he prepared to leave the land. God promised to be with him and to bring him back again. And now, as Jacob returns, God meets him again. He sees the Lord. He sees the angels of God. He is reminded of God's presence with him. He is reminded that God fulfilled that promise when He said, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Brothers and sisters, the Lord proved Himself faithful to Jacob. He kept His promises that He had made to him. Indeed, the Lord has proven Himself faithful in every generation, for this is who He is. The Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one, 2 Thessalonians 3.3 says. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations, Deuteronomy 7.9. And so here is the application that we conclude with. Let us put all of our hope in Him knowing that He will keep His Word and finish the work that He started in us. For our God is faithful, even when we are faithless. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Father, we thank You even for this long narrative um, contained here in Genesis. We do see in it a picture, a picture of Your faithfulness, a picture even of the experience that we have in the spiritual realm. We were not in bondage to Laban nor to Egypt, but we were in bondage to the evil one himself. And what a cruel and exacting taskmaster he is. We thank you for the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus, that we have been freed from his grasp. Lord, he still pursues us. He pursues us to accuse us, to shame us, to remind us of past sin. He is eager to have us return to His kingdom and to His reign. God, give us wisdom. May we have none of it as Your children. But may we see Him for what He is. And may we see You for who You are. A gracious, loving, good and faithful God who gives good gifts to His children. Help us to cling to You always, seeing that in You there is the blessed life forevermore. We pray these things in the name of Christ and all of God's people say, Amen.